So tonight, uh, we're going to look at another statement of concern, and it's statement 15. And the responses to this question also reveal that there's a lot that is wrong with people out there. So statement 15 asks, true or false, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Well, here's a breakdown of the responses. Uh, Across the United States, meaning all who participated, 70% agreed with that statement. So 70% agreed that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 21% disagreed. Uh, Breaking it down in a little bit more detail, among evangelicals, that is those who would profess uh, that salvation comes by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone, 65% agreed with that statement. And among that number, 48% of them strongly agreed with that statement. And only 32% disagreed. So basically, statistically speaking, what you have is no, differenti- or no difference, no differentiation between how the population at large answers that question and how someone within the church answers that question. Uh, I shared with you last Wednesdays, we looked at the statement regarding the nature of God, that we could actually break down the responses among those who attend church several times a week. And how alarming that was, that it said something to us about the nature of our churches and our culture today. Well, it doesn't change with this question, unfortunately. Because among those who attend church several times a week, 73% agreed with the statement. That's more than the U.S. adult population at large. So there's a lot going on here. Um, I think as we consider these responses to the question, it reveals to us the unfortunate reality that has been stated that we tend to have very high thoughts of ourselves and very low thoughts about God. That's exactly what these results are saying. But why the alarm, why the concern, why take time to look at this particular question and the answers? Well, because once again, a central doctrine of our faith is at stake. This question, statement 15 on the State of Theology survey, deals with the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. And it's clear that many don't understand the doctrine and why it matters. In the key findings section of the report that's available online, uh, the website reads, it is unsurprising that most U.S. adults believe that humans are born innocent, given the influence of humanistic philosophies and worldviews that teach self-determinism and a view of humankind as basically good. So from the world's perspective, we understand their response. Yeah, we're all good. We're all okay. We're all innocent in the eyes of God. There's nothing wrong with me. They go on to write, however, the fact that almost two-thirds of evangelicals believe that humans are born in a state of innocence reveals that the biblical teaching of original sin is not embraced by most evangelicals. This truth is foundational for an accurate understanding of the gospel and of our absolute need for the grace of God in salvation. In that statement, you hear the words foundational and absolute. There's a lot at stake in this doctrine. It's one that we must get right. 
So what is the doctrine of original sin? Sometimes it's referred to as inherited sin. Well, let me first tell you what it's not speaking about. When we use the language of original sin, it's not the first sin committed, nor the first sin committed by man, but rather an understanding of how the sin of Adam corrupts all humanity. So we're not necessarily speaking of uh, the act of disobedience by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, taking of uh, the forbidden fruit. We're not saying that specifically, but rather the doctrine of original sin seeks to understand how that act has shaped all of mankind. Let me give you a a little bit more technical definition. Original sin is a term that defines the nature of mankind's sinful condition because of Adam's fall. It teaches that all people are corrupted by Adam's sin through natural generation, by which, together with Adam's imputed condemnation, we all enter the world guilty before God. What was the question? Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. The doctrine of original sin says absolutely not. We come into this world guilty before God. Original sin shows that we sin because we are sinners, entering this world with a corrupt nature and without hope apart from the saving grace of God that is in the gospel. So understanding the doctrine of original sin teaches us that we were not born innocent in the eyes of God. We're not born innocent. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. False. 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 Because of original sin, we're born guilty. We have received the imputed condemnation of Adam. It is ours as well as his. And thereby we are in need of God's mercy and grace. So there's, there's a lot riding on this. It helps us understand who we are. It gives us a right anthropology, a right understanding of mankind, as well as an understanding of who God is. So if you have your Bibles open, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read for us verses 12 through 21. This is a, a foundational passage on this doctrine of original sin. And, and Paul is dealing with this in the context of giving us the glories of the gospel. And we can't miss that. There's a, a connection here that we're ultimately going to get to between understanding this doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we lose this doctrine, if we lose this understanding, the gospel is ultimately at stake. All right, so let's hear the word of God tonight. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more 
have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the teaching of his word. So this is a foundational passage in helping us understand the doctrine of original sin. And the heart of this passage that Paul gives us here is him comparing two individuals, Adam and Jesus Christ. The first Adam, the historical Adam of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come into the world. So Paul is going about showing us the roles that these two men play uh, in redemptive history, in humanity, and in the gospel. And ultimately, what Paul is showing us is how Adam's sin has affected all mankind. I want you to look at me. We're just going to kind of walk through a few verses here to kind of lay the groundwork for this, this doctrine of original sin. And then I want us to help us think about it in, in three ways, how we think about sin in three ways. And then ultimately we'll, we'll hopefully end tying everything together in a, a pretty bow at why this doctrine really is so important. Put all the puzzle pieces together. So ultimately what we see Paul saying in verse 12 is that sin came into the world, that is, into human history, through one man. That one man is Adam. And from Adam's sin, death came to mankind. But then in the second half of verse 12, he says, So death spread to all men because all sinned. Now we can't miss what Paul is saying here. We've got to think carefully and read clearly Paul in this passage is not dealing with individual sins that we may commit. We'll talk about that in a moment. But rather he is dealing with just the sin of Adam. And ultimately what he is saying is that that sin of Adam has become the sin of every man. That as Adam sinned, all men sinned with him. Uh, we see this in verse 12 because Paul uh, gives us a... Uh, a unique way of arranging his material. Um, he, he kind of writes in a pattern. It's A, B, B, A. So he's dealing with an A topic, B topic, B topic, back to A topic. 
All right, let me show you what I'm talking about here. Look in verse 12. Look at what he says. Sin came into the world through one man. Sin by one man. That's A. And then he moves to death through sin. Death through sin. That's B. The consequences of sin is death. Through that sin of one man, death came. He picks that thought back up in the second half of the verse. So death spread to all men. So the death that came from Adam's sin, he is reminding us again in the middle part of that verse that that death has come to all men because, and now he goes back to his A topic, all sinned. The all sin that he writes of there at the end of verse 12 relates back to the one sin that came into the world through one man. What Paul is saying in that verse is that in Adam's one sin, we have all sinned. He's not saying there at the end of verse 12 that we've all committed our personal sins. We'll talk about that. We surely have. But that's not the point Paul is making. Paul is saying is that in Adam's sin, that one particular sin, we sinned as well. And as such, we are all counted as sinners. And we know that that's the case. Why? Because death comes to all men. So Paul says, here's my point. Adam sinned. And in Adam, every human being sinned as well in that sin. And the evidence of that is that through that sin, death came and all men die. He elaborates on it more as we go to verse 13. He gives us an illustration of this being worked out. For... That's how he begins the verse. He's going to give some clarification. Let me explain to you or illustrate for you what I'm talking about. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. All right, so let's pause right here. Understand our biblical history. The law was given. He's speaking of the law being given to Moses. Mount Sinai, book of Exodus, bringing the people out of Egypt. Moses hears the law that they're going to govern themselves by. And Paul says in the beginning of verse 13 that sin was present in the world before that law was given. That before Moses was given the law, sin was still in operation. It was still taking place. But, he says, sin is not counted where there is no law. Now what does he mean by that? Well, in essence, what he is saying is that there's not a biblical, if I could use that language, it's not really what I want to say or how I want to say it, but I'm going to say it anyways. When the law has not been given, there's not an understanding of that infraction. Does that make sense? So God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, knew that they were sinning because God gave them the law and says, don't do this and do do this. Well, that wasn't there prior to Moses. As Paul's saying, he says, but yet there was still sin in the world. And he says, but you can't count sin as a transgression against the law when there is no law. So in essence, they, they can't be held guilty because of a law that they've broken, which they don't know about. Kind of his, his argument there. That's not as tight as I would like to say it to you, but you get the gist. But Paul says in verse 14, yet, despite that, Death reigned from Adam to Moses. From Adam to Moses, death still reigned. And death came about, why? Because of 
sin. One man's sin. And Paul says those who died before the law was given died even though their sin was not like the transgression of Adam. It was a different sin, but yet they were still condemned to death. Why? Because Adam's sin became their sin. And Adam, they sinned as well. And Paul's argument is, we know that's the case because they were held guilty and faced death because of sin. So from Adam to Moses, men still died because they were sinners, not simply because they transgressed the law. They were unlike Adam in that no express command had been given to them. Adam was given an express command from God, was he not? God gave the law to Moses and God gave the law to Adam. Don't eat of this tree. He broke that command. They were unlike that in that they had no express command given to them, yet they were still counted guilty and faced death. Why? That's the doctrine of original sin. Is that in Adam, all sinned. We go down to verses 18 and 19. And what we discover there is Paul's argument being fleshed out even more. That through the actions of Adam, all men were counted as guilty. I, I didn't tell you at the beginning of this, but we're, we're kind of in the deep end of the pool again this week. All right? But bear with me. Bear with me. We're heading towards some shallow water, okay? Verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass, that one trespass is the sin of Adam, and that sin led to the condemnation for all men. That sin led to condemnation, guilt for all men. Not a sin that they committed, not any act that they had performed, but the act of Adam. The sin, the one trespass that Adam committed made all guilty. All were rendered guilty, not innocent because of Adam's sin. This is Paul's argument. One trespass by Adam, all men were condemned. He goes on in verse 19, he says, by one man's disobedience, Adam's sin, many were made sinners. See Paul's argument here? We were made sinners. We were made sinners before we ever existed because Adam sinned. This is the doctrine of original sin. This is Paul's argument here. Before we ever existed physically, Adam's sin made us sinners in the eyes of God. So what Paul is arguing here is that due to Adam's trespass, we inherited guilt and corruption as his posterity. From Adam's trespass, we inherited and was imputed upon us legal guilt before a holy God and corruption as his offspring of humanity. Now, that's dog paddling in deep water, okay? So let me help us think about how we relate to sin in three ways. And hopefully as we get to the end of this, we'll understand really what's taking place in the doctrine of original sin. So first of all, we can relate to sin personally. Personally. And what I mean by that, these are the sins that we commit. Our actions, our attitudes, maybe our inactions, words that we speak. These are our sins. And when we think of sin, this is how we most often think of our sin. 
the things that we do personally, our personal sin. What did, what did Jesus teach us to pray in the, the model prayer? We call it the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us this day our debts. Forgive us this day our transgressions. Forgive us this day our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us. So we can think of sin in a personal relation, what we do. But we also understand that we can relate to sin naturally. And this is the component, this is the component of the doctrine of original sin. And what I mean by this natural relation to sin is that it's the understanding that we are by nature sinners. This is the corruption component, the corruption aspect that we receive from Adam's transgression. As a result, all men are born in total depravity. Now, that doesn't mean we all do evil things or that we all are as evil as we can possibly be. God's common grace and the restraint of law uh, helps retain some of that. But what it does mean is that because of Adam's sin, we are all bent to sin. Not innocence, but sin. And this is crystal clear throughout the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. He'd been confronted by the prophet Nathan concerning his sin with Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51, we have him offering a prayer of repentance to God over that sin. And in it, he acknowledges to God, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David's not talking about any action of his mother that was sinful that led to his conception and birth. David's mother is the furthest thing from his mind in Psalm 51. David is strictly dealing with his own personal heart before God. Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. And so what David is acknowledging here in Psalm 51, 5 is that, Lord, from the get-go, I've been a sinner. From my conception onward, my heart has been inclined towards sin. In iniquity, I entered this world. In sin, I was conceived. David acknowledges real quick, I was an innocent in the eyes of God, even in my birth. Psalm 58.3, the psalmist says the same thing. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. That's what the Bible says. It's who we are. From the very get-go, we're sinners. The wicked are estranged from the womb. We go astray from birth. Now, we have a hard time believing that when we hold that sweet little bundle of joy in our arms. I love them, and they're so cute, and they smile. But you let that sweet little thing get about two years old, and you realize real quick what you've got on your hands, a holy terror. And the words of the psalmist begin echoing in your ears. Yeah, maybe God does know a little bit of what he's talking about. Isn't it amazing? We, we don't have to teach our kids to lie. We don't have to teach our kids to be selfish. We don't have to teach our kids to do wrong. We don't have to teach our kids to be disobedient. You know why? Because it's who they are. From their birth in the womb. Paul picks this up in the New Testament. Ephesians 2. 
That familiar passage, Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, listen to this, and were by nature, were by our very essence, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, all of mankind <laughs> comes into the world this way. 1 John 1, verse 8. John simply said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Hear what John says and then think about 70% of people taking a survey, botching the question, do we have sin in us? John says, if we say we don't. Now, I'm not saying maybe they, maybe they just got it wrong. Maybe they think, well, maybe it's at some point down the road or something we become sinful. You know. maybe, maybe that's the case. I don't, I don't know. But it's alarming. It's concerning. We're going we're gonna to hear why it's concerning in just a moment. But when John says, if we say we have no sins, we are in deception and the truth is not in us. So what we realize is that we don't sin and then become sinners. That's not how this unfolds. No, we sin because we are sinners. It is our natural disposition. We are sinners, and that is why we sin. From the youngest to the oldest, apart from Christ, our nature is stained by sin. We are not innocent. So that's the natural relation to sin. And that comes in part because of this doctrine of original sin, and our connection to Adam. But then the third way I want us to think about sin tonight is federally. Federally. Or covenantal, if you choose. And this is, in my estimation, the key component of the doctrine of original sin. Because what we have in Romans 5, and really in other places that we could go to in Scripture as well, with Adam, just one quick excursus, I'm going to give you another one in a second. This is why it's so important that we argue for the historic beginning of Genesis and the historic identity of Adam. Uh, there are some, even among the churches today, evangelical even, that would argue or put forth that, you know, Adam and Eve are just kind of mythological be beings out there and they're just kind of representative of how humanity came to be. No, Are you kidding me? If you believe that, what Paul wrote here in Romans 5 goes completely out the window. So Adam, a historic being, the first human, and in that position, in that role, he serves as our federal head, the representative of all the human race. And this is the crux of Paul's argument in Romans 5, in both directions. But Paul understands that as the first of humankind, the first of mankind, Adam is the representative of the whole. And it was God's design and creation that placed him there as the head of humanity, naturally and legally. He is the covenantal head. And as such, by his sin, all whom he represented 
are accounted then as sinners too. Because Adam is the representative of the entire human race. By his sin, this is Paul's argument, by one man's sin, all sinned. By the disobedience of one man, all were made sinners. By this one man's sin, as our representative federal covenantal head, we were naturally prone to sin and legally before God counted as sinners. The guilt of Adam is applied to every human. Every human. Therefore, when we come into this world, when we come into existence as a human being in conception, through the birth canal, breathing oxygen, walking upon the earth, we are guilty before a holy God. Let me give you what I think is a plain evidence of this, but also a difficult evidence as well. And it's simply the death of infants. The wages of sin is death. Why is there death? Because there's sin. So why then do infants who have committed no personal sin, face death. Why do seemingly the most innocent among us die? Why are they prone to that? Why are they subjected to that? Why must they experience that? Because in Adam, all have sinned. Because in Adam, all are guilty. By our connection to Adam, our federal legal representative of the entire human race, we are culpable legally and corrupt naturally. Now, it's a plain fact, and it's a painful fact. So before I move on to tying this up for us tonight, let me give you one more excursus, because I can't bring this subject up and not deal with that. The Bible is clear. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And I want you to know tonight that while I do believe that every infant that's born, mine included, yours as well, are all born guilty before a holy God, that for those who die in a state of infancy or what we might call innocence, I believe that the sacrifice of Christ, his blood shed for redemption, has provided and secured their salvation. They are safe in the arms of God. I believe those counted among all that the Father has given to the Son, John 6, includes those. That's my belief. I believe Scripture would uphold that. I believe as we search the Old Testament, the New Testament, that that is, is there in the pages of God's Holy Word, that they are covered through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. But yet, why do they face death? Would it not be unjust if they had no guilt applied to them to face the wages of sin? Sins that they have not morally, personally committed yet? Because if we understand what the Bible is saying, it's clear that we all are sinners from the get-go. Because of the sin of one man, we all are counted 
is guilty before God. Now, why does this matter? Why take a Wednesday night lesson and deal with this? Well, first of all, I think it helps us understand the miseries that we face in life. The teaching of mankind's universal guilt that we receive from Adam is what vindicates God for the miseries that we all experience here in this world. We all know people who are apart from God that want to condemn God and shake a fist at God, that he's the one responsible for the sufferings of the people in their lives, the people around this world. But it was Augustine, the early church father, who pointed out in his opposition to a gentleman named Pelagius, who I'm going to talk about in just a moment, that wrote, the appalling misery of the human race can only be explained as a punishment upon sin. How can God, who certainly is good and just, subject, subject all humans from their conception onto sin, from their conception to, in sin, excuse me, from subject all humans from their conception onto sin and death if they are completely innocent? An original moral debt must rest upon all. There is no other way to understand the crushing yoke that weighs upon all the children of Adam. You understand his argument there? We can't make sense of living in a world where there's so much tragedy and brokenness and misery with a God who is good and holy and just and right without understanding. There's a moral debt that's applied to every person because in Adam all sinned. So it vindicates God. If we lose that, it's in essence looking at God and saying, you're a moral monster. Number two, we need to hold to the doctrine of original sin because recognizing our universal inability, it helps us to recognize our universal inability to do good and merit good. So I mentioned to you the name Augustine, early church father there in North Africa, first century. He wrote and argued against a gentleman by the name of Pelagius, who was the father of Pelagianism, the view that he espoused. And according to Pelagius' view, what's known as Pelagianism, the only reason people die is because they themselves personally sin. Now, that's true. We, we know that, that we die because we sin. And we'll stand before God and give account for the personal sins that we've committed, uh, for those who die. Uh, but this view argues that the link or connection between Adam's sin and us is simply that he gave us a bad example, that we have ultimately, without wisdom, followed. Here's Adam. Don't be like him. But we are. This is Pelagius' thought. What that leads to is ultimately that historically and experientially, we know that not all people die because they voluntarily sin. We talked about that with infants. All right? So there's a, there's a chink in the argument here, Pelagius. But ultimately, in Romans 5, Paul makes it clear six times that only one sin... The sin of Adam is the cause of death. Furthermore, if all die because they are guilty of actual transgression, 
Then they die because they sinned as Adam did. But verse 14 says that some did not sin that way. So he takes us back to it's Adam's sin. It's Adam's sin that ultimately imputes death upon all of us. And when we fail to understand that, when we fail to argue against that as Pelagius was doing, arguing that there's a state of innocence within us, it leaves sin entirely unexplained across the universe. If Adam's sin did not make all mankind sinners, then you would expect over the course of human history and how many billions of people have lived in that time that maybe one would at least get it right. But not one has, apart from the Son of God coming into this world. In the language of Paul in Romans 3, there's not one who is righteous. No, not one. And ultimately, if Pelagius' view is adopted and accepted that, that there is no connection to Adam's sin with us, and we're innocent, we can ultimately look to an ability to do good or to merit good of our own making. And that would then destroy what Paul goes to in Romans 5, the parallel that he draws between Adam and Jesus. If Pelagius' view was correct, Paul would argue that since all men die personally because they sin, then those men can live personally because of their own righteousness. But what Paul says in Romans 5 is exact, the exact opposite. That we can't live based on anything that we do, but rather on what another man has done. And that brings us ultimately to where I want to land the plane. It's only through a true understanding of the doctrine of original sin that we are given a true and glorious glimpse of the gospel. Now, you may hear this teaching tonight, and you may want to argue, well, this sure sounds unfair. Adam did something, and I received the punishment. Well, I would just remind you, first of all, that you have still gone on to commit your own sins. You have committed your personal sins, whereby you are held accountable before a holy God. And I would also contend, would you have not done the same if you were in Adam's shoes? I mean, think about Adam. Here's Adam in a perfect state, in a perfect place, and yet he fell. You think you're better than him? But ultimately, if you wish to object and reject the guilt of Adam being imputed to all, then you must also object to and reject the righteousness of Christ being applied to those who believe. For you see, if you deny the doctrine of original sin and the imputed guilt that comes from the one sin of Adam being applied to all mankind, what ground do you have then to say that the righteousness of another man can be placed upon you as well? This is Paul's argument in Romans 5. By one man, sin came into the world, and through that one sin, death is passed to all men, and all men have sin. But there's more good news. Because by another man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, by one man's obedience, 
all who believe in him can be made righteous. James Boyce said, without a knowledge of our unfaithfulness and rebellion, we will never come to know God as the God of truth and grace. We must understand the doctrine of original sin. It teaches us to despair of all hope in ourselves and any other natural source, instead relying solely on God's grace in the gospel. The truth of original sin shows us that our salvation must be by the grace of God alone, so that the glory belongs to Him alone. To appreciate the doctrine of original sin is to base our hope and evangelism and the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of God's Word. That as the gospel goes forth, the righteousness of one man becomes the righteousness of those who will believe in him. And if you don't believe the doctrine of original sin and how it shapes our humanity, how it shapes creation, the grounds for understanding the doctrine of the gospel and how it shapes the inhabitants of the new creation fall apart. So understand tonight, we're not born innocent. We're born guilty from the get-go. But the good news is, is that God sent his son into the world. Gave his life as a perfect sacrifice. And that all who would believe in him are no longer counted as guilty. What does Romans 8 begin with? For now in Christ Jesus there is therefore no condemnation. Thank God for the gospel. Let's pray.